ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just one guest today, Brian Milikovsky on Ukraine's refugees. There are currently over 1.2 million refugees registered in Ukraine and an estimated 800,000 who have fled to Russia, Belarus, and Poland. These displaced people are just one of many examples of the human cost of the war in the Donbass. Brian Milikovsky got a first-hand sense of all this as a volunteer in Kiev, Kharkiv, and the Donbass. Brian Milikovsky first traveled to Ukraine in 2009 with the Fulbright program and for the past five years has worked in Russia as a forest ecologist. This year he returned to eastern Ukraine for three months to volunteer with refugee aid organizations and learn more about the humanitarian crisis there. He blogs about his experience at milikovsky.livejournal.com and is author of Time for a Lousy Peace in Ukraine, published on the National Interest. Uh, so you recently spent some time as a volunteer working with refugees uh, in the Donbass from the Donbass. Uh, what inspired you to do this type of work? Well, I discovered uh, for about the last year that I was spending a pretty good part of my day every day just reading the news uh, from Ukraine. I used to live there uh, six six years ago. The last five years, I've lived in Russia, uh, and so I have a. a an amount of personal feeling, which actually in the end kind of surprised me how much it turned out to be. And I figured after a while, if I was going to spend so much of my energy worrying about what's what's going on there, it'd be better to, to, to do that, doing something useful. Uh, so I took a couple months off from work and traveled to Ukraine, first to Kyiv, then to Kharkiv, which is a major hub for internal refugees, and then on to several government-controlled towns in the Donbass. Just volunteering with with uh, various local and international organizations that uh, are trying to trying to help those people. Now, you did some work with surveying uh, refugees for the United Nations. Uh, talk about that a little bit. United Nations High Commission for Refugees (UNHCR) periodically uh, assesses uh, the level of help that uh, internally displaced persons who are internal refugees or external refugees are, are getting in a, in a given crisis zone. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it's in order to understand, uh, are, they, are they getting the help they need? Are there uh, certain social groups that are or are not? Is, is there sort of overlapping of help, which is very often happening for where, where certain categories of people get all the help and, and other people get ignored? Uh, and what do they want to tell aid agencies and organizations about what they actually need so that they're not sort of just passive recipients. So we traveled around government-controlled towns of uh, Luhanska Oblast, one of the two Donbass provinces, uh, and uh, spoke to them about problems uh, they were facing with the first thing we heard about is the incredible difficulties with the travel permits to cross from government-held ter territory back into separatist territory where many of them still have a lot of their life. Uh, uh, but thankfully, we did learn that, that the efforts of quite a few aid organizations are certainly having an effect, and uh, quite a few people are being helped. And, and what type of other work did you do in addition to that? 
I worked with several organizations, some international uh, and some local, that actually simply are responsible for putting together those bags full of food, figuring out who they need to go to, and getting it, getting them to those people. Uh, which might be by setting up a center in a town that has a lot of internal refugees, uh, and they come there uh, and have to show their documents demonstrating that they're indeed uh, displaced uh, and of, an, of a group that needs help. Or it might mean filling up big tractor trailer trucks or even just little minivans full of these aid packets and going to frontline towns to give them give them to people who can't leave. Now there's a I want to get in some of the issues you mentioned. Um, and first though, let's talk about a bit like what drives um, people to into fleeing their homes. Now there's an estimated the UN estimates about 1.2 million internally displaced refugees within Ukraine. And this of course doesn't count the some 600,000 to 800,000 the numbers vary that have gone to Russia. Um, and of course, the war has been a major cause of refugeedom. But talk a bit about what you learned about people's reasoning for fleeing, the timing of their fleeing, how long did they, you know, wait out the war until they finally decided that they needed to leave? Well, when I got there already in basically late March uh, 2015, for instance, in Kharkiv, uh, it was a relatively small flow of refugees, but it was already people who were really desperate, who had held out for a very long time uh, in the towns that they're, they're from on separatist-held territories or government-held territory, but right on the front line, because there are refugees from both of those zones. Uh, sometimes because they just were not, did not want to leave their homes, but very often because uh, they're very poor. And it was just Whereas maybe a professional can imagine, all right, I'll flee, but somehow we'll figure out how I'll get back my property and, and uh, or even, you know, I can put a life back together with my professional skills and this and that for, for the very poor in the Donbass. Leaving their home often is just uh, almost inconceivable. And so a lot of people held out, and I heard that from volunteers who are working with refugees, is that now we're seeing some of the most desperate people we've seen yet leaving the war zone. Uh, whereas even early, way back in summer of 2014, when this conflict just began, there was a major out, outflow of uh, uh, sort of middle-class professionals from, from the war zone who had the resources. Uh, uh, and uh, But a certain number of people uh, across the entire ideological spectrum stick it out because their position is just, this is my home. Uh, I will not be made to leave. And and what about? Uh, I, I imagine that the different flows. Uh, well, let me ask you this: like, what what types of people did you encounter in terms of like, were they mostly women, women with children, elderly people? What about the young? Because usually when I see pic, when they have pictures from the the people remaining uh, in the war zone, they tend to be quite elderly. Uh, the young people seem to have fled. Uh, what was your experience in your encounters with refugees? Yeah, it's certainly it's heavily, uh, you definitely understand that it's heavily uh, uh, weighted towards uh, pensioners. Uh, I recently saw UNHCR's figures, and uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, for Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, 
uh, it's around 60% pensioners amongst the, the uh, internally displaced persons. Uh, also, the other sort of vulnerable groups you had you had mentioned, single mothers, multi-children families. Uh, I think because these people uh, are often were had the least resources to begin with, many of them held out the longest, even though, of course, you those are the kind of people you'd love to get out of a war zone first. They're the most vulnerable. Uh, and they certainly dominated the, the groups that I uh, was, uh, that, that I became acquainted with. Part of that also is there was definitely an inclination of, of men, especially of working or service age, not to show their faces very often in the process. Um, they're afraid of people finding out they're there from both sides. Why is that? Well, uh, not everyone who leaves exact really told anybody on, especially separatist-held side, that they left, and they're afraid of being uh, interpreted as enemies of the self-declared People's Republics for having fled to Ukrainian territory, government-controlled territory. Uh, uh, or they may, their life may necessitate that they cross back and forth and they just don't want to be associated with one side because constantly they have to pass through checkpoints manned by armed men. Uh, and that question is extremely, uh, uh, sharp for them. And on the, uh, if they register on the government side, then, uh, many of them can become eligible for the draft and not, not all of them wanted. But if they wanted to get aid, they had to register, and so and so they certainly are at least now in the in the list. So so in a way, from what you're describing, is is that the the conflict has made some of these people, particularly men of I would imagine military age, uh, suspicious just on the grounds of their you know existence. I mean, there's a one of the really terrible things about this war, yeah, is is uh, the extent that it it's turned a lot of people into these sort of automatically suspicious, uh, automatically not trusted uh, categories uh, from both sides. What I saw on the government-controlled side, it, it has to be acknowledged, is while there are, especially in, in the Donbass con government-controlled areas, uh, a lot of local towns were receiving uh, refugees with real grace and uh, care because because they're truly a lot of people just flee maybe 50 to 100 kilometers across the line just to a different part of the Donbass uh, and there were a lot of local administrators and volunteers including volunteers from all over the country doing incredible work to help these people but unfortunately there's also a dynamic of sort of dehumanizing Donbass refugees oh why didn't you stay and stop this uh, especially, a, for instance, a, a military-age man. Why aren't you there fighting for your country? Of course, they get the exact same thing from people uh, who are for the People's Republic's separatist territories on the other side. You know, oh, why did you run to them? They're trying to destroy us. And for someone who just just doesn't feel that they need to take up arms in this war, that they don't think that that's a, a, how this should end, they're put in an incredible quandary. And people from the Donbass in general, uh, uh, many of whom are, have been incredibly victimized here, sometimes find themselves under suspicion and uh, sort of distaste 
when they get to the Ukrainian side. And, and that's having that has an effect. Uh, can you talk a bit about how then the local population is receiving this kind of flood of refugees? Well, there's definitely uh, a sort of remarkable story to be told about uh, the way that especially nearby territories, but also all the way across Ukraine, and since there's thousands, thousands of refugees in Lviv, uh, have absorbed what is now actually 1.3 million people. Uh, and with what's happening right now, uh, uh, just outside of Donetsk, it's likely to, to rise by several more thousand people soon. Uh, incredible effort to absorb these people that is, uh, to a great extent, run by volunteers. I would say local administrators have a huge role in it as well, local mayors, local social workers, uh, but the, it has largely not been a, a big effort run by the, by the central government, uh, and instead there's been this incredible sort of volunteer upswell to help these people. Uh, a lot of these Donbass towns, because most, like I said, most refugees don't flee far. Uh, they might flee to just government-controlled Donbass or to Kharkiv province, Dnipropetrovsk province. Uh, they're fleeing to areas that sometimes themselves experienced fighting, uh, that themselves are being really hard hit by the economic crisis that came out of this war, having their mines shut down, their factories shut down. Uh, and, and sometimes... Uh, adding, you know, another third to the population. I think of the town of Severodonetsk in, in Luhanska province, which has 33,000 IDPs in a population of 120,000 uh, locals. The efforts made to uh, keep those people from having to live on the street, get them registered so that they can get the benefits, their benefits as internal refugees, get them food, medicine, uh, to try to help them find long-term housing, even try to help them find new jobs. is just an incredible volunteer effort. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that particularly uh, in a conversation off mic that uh, the evangelical churches have played a major role. I mean, a whole lot of organizations are, uh, are, are pitching in. Uh, I would say proportionally that the evangelical, evangelical churches impress uh, by the scale that uh, that they are helping. Uh, there's, I met uh, volunteers from one church that had evacuated in rented buses and minivans ten thousand people from frontline towns. Uh, that's just private individuals weaving around the the shell craters, getting to the most dangerous towns uh, on these roads where sometimes even military vehicles don't particularly like to show themselves. Uh, and and taking ten thousand people to safety, uh, they they are, they have put in a, a tremendous effort. Uh, uh, a lot of different organizations from very different backgrounds across the ideological spectrum, uh, because there are because the whole spectrum is represented on, on government held territories as well. Have uh, have really engaged, and from what I saw. Uh, all the organizations that are helping people. Uh, I never saw anybody ask a refugee or a frontline civilian's politics before helping them. Uh, they've really apoliticized the process. It's just about helping people in need.
But just a, a bit about the politics of it. How has the different types of uh, sources of aid to refugees impacted how the refugees understand or think about, say, the central government in Kiev or the, uh, the civil, Ukrainian civil society and perhaps a new type of politics being born out of this effort? Did you get a sense of their attitudes? Yeah, it's, it's definitely extremely important that so many uh, Ukrainians as volunteers are engaging in this process because we need to understand that, especially on separatist-held territories, but also on government-controlled frontline towns, there's a lot of anger with the government. Uh, public polling shows that no matter what people think about what, who they'd like to be controlling their territory, uh, that the first uh, group they see as guilty for this war getting as far as it has is the government. You can think that's right or wrong, but that's what people, a lot of people there believe. I saw that anger. Uh, uh, why are they shooting at us? Why hasn't the president, uh, you know, sat down and negotiated an end to this? And and you can see a lot of people's self-identification as Ukrainians in what was culturally already a very complex territory, really shaking. But then these volunteers arrive and they're, they're almost like sort of ambassadors of, of Ukraine. And also polling has shown that volunteers are some of the most trusted right now uh, uh, sort of social groups in the country above uh, the army, the police, the, and especially bureaucrats. Uh, so they're, they're playing an incredibly important side role, not only in providing direct help, but in sort of maintaining these, these bonds with territories that are uh, uh, under incredible strain right now and, and where their self-identification as Ukrainians is under strain. It's, it's really that strong. Uh, the lack of a very large coordinated effort from the central government to help refugees and instead the imposition of several policies the the really strict and not very functional and corrupted travel permit system to get across the front line the recent grocery blockade which i i personally can't interpret as anything but just just cruelty wait 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 a second talk about that a bit i was unfamiliar with a grocery blockade so first officially there was for a long time it was perceived that there was an unofficial blockade of basically food products commercially crossing into separatist held territories from Ukraine. Uh, people were talking about it, but the government was saying, no, there's no such thing. Then in Luhanska province, the governor officially imposed that, saying that it was because the central government had not set up guidelines to control corruption, uh, to keep uh, dangerous ob objects from crossing into separate, you know, basically arms, into separatist held territories along with food. So he said, I don't want to be responsible in the end. Uh, uh, it's And so I, I am using my authority to just block commercial shipments of, of groceries. You can bring, you know, a couple bags in a, in a private car, but that's it. And this several days ago, uh, after the, the blowout uh, in, outside of Donetsk, uh, this was imposed on Donetsk province as well. Uh, I, I understand there is, a, is a, a, a military logic to it, but essentially what the president said is we ask Ukrainians living on separatist-held territories to understand and to come to government-held territories now. So they're basically trying to drive 
anyone who's left there onto the government side uh, by not allowing food in. Uh, from everything I understood from refugees I'd spoken to, many people simply cannot tear their roots out completely out of the places they lived all their lives. Uh, even if they wanted to, they can't just flee like that. Uh, uh, telling people flee and then not having a government program to, to help them since it's mostly, uh, that's not true, I'm sorry. There is, there is a, 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 IDPs do receive uh, basically a government welfare uh, payment, but so much of the effort to help and receive them is done by volunteers. So for the government to say flee, but not really have a program to receive them, uh, to me is just, it's just cruel. Uh, and I don't think anybody believes that that the separatist fighters are going to go hungry because of this policy, because there is the Russian border that they control on their territories. Uh, it seems to me the people who are going to go hungry are those most vulnerable from, from a policy like this. So having not only the lack of a particularly coordinated uh, program for for helping refugees at the government level, but then having these kinds of policies be imposed is not helping Kyiv win or keep hearts and minds in the Donbass. It is not helping. Yeah, I could I could imagine. And and you know, one of the things you mentioned before is the fact that there is a lot of movement back and forth over the front line. People can't just kind of, as you said, tear their lives from someplace that where they, you know, grew up and lived all their lives and have relationships. And many, many refugees do return to their homes to fetch family or protect property or whatever the reason. Uh, talk about this movement and its difficulties, especially with the Propusk system and the corruption around it. Well, about, uh, gosh, I guess it would, it would be several months before I got there. So it's probably already been five months, maybe a half a year in effect that uh, in order to cross uh, from government-held territory to separatist-held territory, uh, you need one of these Propusk travel permits. Uh, again, the idea is, is, is pretty understandable. Uh, uh, trying to control movement, ensure that there are not uh, arms moving in one direction or the other. Uh, However, it's, there are so many people. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and again, there, there were efforts, but they were not very successful to streamline that permit system. For instance, it was uh, after several months of it, you having to travel to one of several towns uh, to hand over all your documents and then wait minimum 10 days, although mostly it was more often it was several months and sometimes you never heard back. Uh, in order to get a permit, they tried to do it online. Uh, the online application site crashed immediately. They said, okay, well, sorry, technical difficulties, try it again. And after, by the time I was leaving in mid-May, there was just as basically tacit admit, admitting that the online site will never work. Uh, this puts a lot of people into a real tough position. For instance, if you have fled all of these towns where, where you can get a propusk, where you have to hand over your documents, uh, are in government-controlled Donbass. If you are a refugee who has, been, has found a home in Lviv, if you, for some reason, need to return to your home in, say, Gorlovka, on separatist-held territory, you have to travel all the way back to government-held Donbass, hand over your, your documents, and then wait weeks to months. Uh, 
we just heard universally from so many people that uh, this is the, the biggest difficulty they face because uh, part of their life remains there. It may be elderly relatives. It may be that they need to protect property. Uh, and while you can maybe understand on some level when the government says, sorry, you just we really don't want people crossing back and forth. It's, it's not recognizing the reality of the way these people live. And again, it's not endearing them to that, to that government. And what about the corruption? How does that work? Yeah, incredibly frustratingly, this uh, in a very sort of old Ukrainian style, not at all about uh, a kind of new way of doing things. Uh, the system became corrupted. Uh, I don't know if it instantly, but very, very soon it began emerging. Uh, also, incredibly corrupted became the uh, permitting process for uh, getting uh, those trucks full of groceries across the line. Uh, basically, you just had to pay a big fat bribe very often in order to, to send uh, produce across uh, to Donetsk or Luhansk, for instance, which was one of motivation for the grocery blockade, but you, you might imagine you'd in, instead try to tackle the corruption than simply say, fine, then no food. Uh, and the Propusk travel permit system uh, became, uh, according to many reports, quite corrupted as well. If in some circumstances uh, you could buy your way across without a Propusk, which when you imagine the kind of people that are trying to stop moving back and forth, you would imagine they would have those kinds of resources at their availability. That is, again, it seems that it's falling the hardest on the most, the most vulnerable people when a system like that gets corrupted. And what are the living conditions like for refugees? Where are they living? Are they in camps? Are they put in homes? Are they get connected with family members? Uh, how do they continue to survive once they've left their homes? A lot of people, of course, moved to live with their their relatives. Um, of course, people from the Donbass often have relatives in eastern Ukraine or even farther afield. Uh, I know some people who... who uh, have relatives in the Carpathians, and that's where they, they went. Uh, quite a few of them are living in um, sort of recently organized in, uh, IDP centers for internally displaced persons uh, in a lot of especially eastern Ukrainian towns, both in the Donbass and Kharkiv, Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. Uh, for instance, summer camps were converted uh, in the town of Krimena in Luhansk Oblast saw a fascinating situation when the uh, several athletes and a handicapped trainer of the uh, Luhansk delegation of the Ukrainian Paralympic team were living in little summer houses at a, at a summer sport camp because they had had to flee Luhansk. Uh, all, all of them have uh, 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 disabilities, of a, sometimes of a rather serious nature. Uh, you also just see a lot of people either, uh, of course, you know, the, all the available houses and apartments, uh, all the way to Kiev have been pretty much snapped up by those people who have resources. Uh, a lot of towns, uh, looked to what kind of empty, but livable homes or apartments they have and put people there. It's a big spread as to where, uh, people are living. I saw some pretty rough conditions, you know. Uh, big sort of bunk bunk rooms where maybe 30 people are living, but they certainly were not inhumane. Uh, uh, and again, I just want to say the effort made by 
local administrations and volunteers to keep get everybody under a roof uh, is tremendous. Now, and f uh, finally, uh, on your blog, you wrote that um, refugees often talk about the senselessness of the war. You, you mentioned that this is a word that you, you hear often speaking to refugees, uh, regardless of their political position. Um, how does looking at this conflict from the perspective of a refugee provide us a different narrative than what we're used to? For me, it, it, it basically changed the costs that we need to be thinking about in a conflict like this. Because the human cost for people in the Donbass, and also we need to remember for uh, people across Ukraine, uh, because soldiers from across the country are serving there and dying there, the human cost is just enormous. Uh, it's overwhelming. The amount of civilian deaths, the amount of destroyed uh, property and homes, the incredible damage to the Donbass industrial sector, which is so important to the Ukrainian economy and particularly to Eastern Ukraine's economy. Uh, and for instance, the recent basically having the Avdeevka Coke plant go out well, uh, is an incredible blow because it supplied so many factories uh, uh, in, in the region. The social strife uh, that is coming out of this conflict, especially from people who were very angry and disenchanted with the government at the beginning of the conflict and after a year in, uh, of armed conflict are uh, deeply embittered. Those costs are so high for Ukraine that I began to think a lot less about bad precedents and slippery slopes uh, as far as, oh gosh, you know, if we negotiate with the separatists. I mean, I'm not romanticizing the separatist side at all. They are also imposing, they are imposing enormous amounts of violence. There are many, many people in the Donbass who want nothing to do with their separatist project and feel that they're just invaders, essentially. Uh, and yet, so often in our narratives, we hear that, you know, it's just not acceptable that uh, uh, foreign-backed separatists could uh, impose some kind of conditions. That would be a dangerous precedent. That would be a slippery slope. Uh, from what I saw, uh, a lot of people are sitting at the bottom of a slippery slope right now. And it's a terrible precedent that those people were allowed to uh, be brought to such a humanitarian catastrophe when some kind of ugly deal perhaps could have been cut. Ideologically suspect, not fair, but potentially one that would reduce this suffering. And... I heard that from a lot of people, including who are absolutely pro-unity, is, is, God, we just have to sit down and cut some kind of deal to make this stop. If, in my perceptions, from seeing the way people are suffering, I'm not sure that effort has been nearly as strong as it should have been. That was Brian Milikovsky, a former volunteer with refugee aid organizations in Kiev, Kharkiv, and the Donbass. You can read about his experiences at milikovsky.livejournal.com. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, where, if you have a moment, you can write a review. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next time, goodbye.
моя Морозечка, моя ты куколка, моя Морозечка, моя ты душенька, моя Морозечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой. 